Welcome to What The If. Philip Chain here. Housebound. Homebound. Not homeward bound, although that's a beautiful song. Documentary filmmaker, stuck at home like everybody else. Except if you're not stuck at home, hopefully you are one of those incredible people that's out saving lives. We are here saving minds. I'll say uh, that. Hopefully, right? Yes. Although I should say probably on balance, we've done more psychological damage to the world than healing. <laughs> so, so any psychological damage you see in the world may have been caused by a podcast. That's right. It's, it's impossible to disprove that. Yeah. Uh, claim. yeah. <laughs> that is Professor Matthew Stanley from uh, New York University. Mm-hmm. How are things with you? Uh, also, you're also um, inside. I am also an involuntary monk. Yep. Um, we are. Have uh, you ever been to uh, this place, Medeara, in Greece? Um, it's kind of in the. It's, it's near Mount Olympus, um, but it's these huge rock spires with um, monasteries built on top, and they're actually impossible to walk up to. They they lower a basket down on a rope, and you climb in, and they haul you up. Hopefully, um, so I'm feeling a little uh, monastic these days. Wow, that's pretty cool. Totally worth a trip. Should you find yourself in Greece? Wow, we need someone to bring us our basket. We're waiting for our basket. <laughs> Relief. Uh, I want to welcome everyone uh, here who's, if you've been listening for a long time, we uh, welcome you back and uh, I hope things are doing okay with you wherever you are in the world. We have a worldwide audience, uh, which is wonderful. Um, so let us know. Let us know. Keep in touch. Um, and whether you're new or, or have listened to us before, email us uh, at feedback at whattheif.com feedback at whattheif.com. Let us know how you're doing, and I'm sure you still have ideas for ifs, ideas for shows, show topics, and um, send those to us. You probably have quite a few. Um, If you also feel like you're living an if right now, which we are, Mm -hmm. uh, let us know how that's going for you. Also, uh, just a reminder, if you could leave us a review on uh, iTunes or whatever service, Apple Music, I guess they're calling it now, Apple Podcasts, I can't keep up. Leave us a review wherever you can and, and uh, give us a, or just click a rating, five stars. That's awesome. That's super helpful. And I am so glad to welcome back our guest, uh, Gabby Panicia, virologist from Rockefeller University, here for, I think, the third time. That's right. Yep. Gabby, how yeah, are you? Time, I, guess. I am good. Uh, good to be back. Yeah, we've been excited. We've we've got uh, we asked Gabby to come on for a number of episodes in a row since we were going through this crazy situation with this pandemic, um, and uh, Gabby knows all about the little buggers that are causing this thing, um, unintentionally. I might add, they don't. As far as we know, they're not conscious. That could that's going to be another if, and we've mm-hmm. pondered yeah. a pondered a little bit what it might be like to be an if. So. Uh, if you're new to this, you haven't heard a couple of our earlier episodes just prior to this one, go check them out and you'll hear a lot more from Gabby. Um, Gabby, how is uh, how are you and your fellow Rockefeller? I don't know. Is there a, a, are you Rockefeller? Rockef- Rockers. Rockers. I mean, I guess we go by grad students. <laughs> no, <laughs> we, we've all been doing good, trying to keep sane. Honestly, the science is keeping us sane for the most part. Like, oh. you know, other scientists checking in, giving you research updates. Uh, you know, I still have lab meeting and each week we get debriefed by the coronavirus crew, um, what they're working on and 
all the new viruses that they have in the lab uh, as they're trying to study this. Oh, that's cool. Is, are there any updates that's you can share? No, other than, well, I mean, there's not really too much headway that we've made. We're trying to really overhaul our entire, um, it's called the BSL-3. It's a specific type of like containment facility. Mm. Um, it just refers to how secure it is, essentially um, how the environment is constructed so that viruses aren't being blown out. Um, and we we don't normally work with respiratory viruses. We normally work with um, stuff like liver viruses, um, a family of viruses called flaviviruses transmitted by mosquitoes. So we're not really too concerned about respiratory viruses normally, so we're not really set up for that. So there's a group of people like overhauling our BSL-3 like protocols and triple checking all of our filters uh, before we start work uh, and uh. before we, I guess, help the entire university start work because I think there are a bunch of other labs that are depending on our facility for coronavirus work. Uh-huh. Amazing. That must be an incredible operation that's going on there. Um, and so you have hinted at occasionally something utterly fascinating, which is going to be the subject of our if today. And that is counterintuitively, well, let me not spoil it. No spoilers. Mm -hmm. No spoilers. What the if? There were no viruses ever. I'm sure the reaction of a lot of people in the audience and my reaction, uneducated reaction, would be... Awesome! Yay! Yay. Finally! I I can throw out that bottle of Lysol that's been sitting under my sink. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine what the world would be like without viruses. But Gabby, you tell us that we are, as usual, greatly misinformed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the world without viruses would be a very very different place i guess especially to you know when in the history of the world they all decided to just up and disappear um because if we never had them to begin with i guess the entire course of evolution might differ because we've got a lot of stuff in our genes that pertains to viruses um and actually fun fact in our genes are some viruses um there are extinct retroviruses basically the fossils of them in our own genes what just Um, just hanging out yeah, yeah. So the, we've we've scrambled them up a little bit, um, but there's actually there's actually someone at my university, Rockefeller, who I, I rotated with and worked briefly with. They're doing paleo virology, where they're reassembling thousands upon thousands of sequences from all different species to reassemble, for example, like ancestral primate vi- like retroviruses that infected our last common ancestor with, say, a bunch of primates, and then they're expressing parts of them to sort of learn what they did. And lo and behold, because viruses are wonky and super useful, it turns out that they may be good anti-cancer treatments. Oh. So viruses are really awesome tools. So where do the when do viruses appear? Do we know um, like when they appear in the tree of life, as it were? So because you can't get like necessarily like a physical fossil record right. of viruses, we only really can speculate. Um, we expect that they're probably about as old as life itself. Um, and it may be that viruses are not re- all related to each other, that it might have been multiple events that created multiple different classes of viruses. Uh, okay. um, so, for example, the DNA and RNA viruses might not necessarily be related, although they could be. Um, because they're so genetically flexible and they have to occasionally 
throw a bunch of stuff out and like completely change themselves. We don't know if that's an event that led to, you know, these different classes forming and we've just lost all of our ability to recover, you know, an entire branch. Um, Or if it's an entirely new event that created that, that virus. Wow. So before we go a little bit too far, let's just give, so for those uh, just super basic um, image and, and kind of just description of what is a virus. So a virus is an infectious particle, basically. Um, they tend to be pretty specific to the organism that they infect. Um, and most viruses on the planet are viruses of bacteria. We call them bacteriophages. Um, I think that they count as like the most plentiful biological agent on Earth. There are more bacteriophage than bacteria. I think it's something mind-boggling like 10 to the 31 um, <laughs> viruses. That's a one followed uh, by 31 zeros. And you're saying yep. that's the number of kinds. That's or the number that's of existing. viruses like existing in the world, I, I believe is, is the current rate. That's what I... So the number of wow. part, the yeah. number of particles, or the number of kinds. It can't be. I believe number it's number of particles. Number of particles. Right. Yeah. Right. Because be, I mean, there's a lot of virus diversity. Um, but I don't know if it's that, that much. Although I'm, th- we're always discovering new viruses, so who knows? Amazing. That number might continue to go up as we discover more. And I don't, I don't have the algorithm that someone used to calculate that. Yeah. <laughs> and Matt, if you could just describe, just so people understand, uh, super basic, a bacteria versus a virus oh right so let's see here you and i'm i know i'm generalizing a little bit but i'm assuming all of our listeners are multicellular life forms (laughs) apologies to anyone who i've offended um so you are made of little cells right so your skin is a whole bunch of little cells all packed together um your muscles are all little cells packed together um and they seem tiny to us right you need a microscope to to see their their size um but relative to viruses those individual cells are gigantic so however smaller one skin cell is than you a virus is smaller than that skin cell billions of times whoa so it's these teeny tiny 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 little things um and as gabby was explaining to us uh, on one of her her previous visits um they're not really alive they're just these chains of dna in little fatty suits of armor um that sneak their way into your cells uh and take them over for their own nefarious purposes um so the you know we of, of course we named computer viruses in analogy to real viruses viruses, but I think we're probably more familiar with computer viruses these days. Mm-hmm. So there are these little chains of protein-based, co- like I guess, amino acid codes um, that sneak around and cause trouble when we're not looking. Right. And just to be clear, just because uh, to be clear the difference between analogy and, and, and reality or whatever, um, bacteria, like we said, bacteria, we would say are living for whatever, yes. whatever it's worth. And so bacteria... I'm pretty sure bacteria don't have feelings and things like that, but they ha- they are, they are alive, and so they don't necessarily do everything on purpose. But in a way, they're alive. So whatever you think about living creatures that do things, they are that. Viruses yeah. really are just well, we just don't know. They they have no. So when we say they invade, they do this, they do that. It's not mm-hmm. because they. Yeah, they don't have any intent. intentionality right. or anything, right? They're not like your roommate 
stealing food from the fridge in the middle of the night. Um, they uh, they are this purely mechanistic chain of molecules uh, that behave in a particular way. So in the same way that when you drop a rock, the rock falls downward. It's not that the rock wants to go anywhere. Uh, it's just that the laws of nature dictate that it moves in this particular way. Uh, viruses are more complicated, but it's the same kind of deal. They're just a chain of molecules that behave in a particular way in particular circumstances. Um, they don't they, they don't desire, they don't intend. Um, they're simply this weird quirk of um, molecular biology. Yeah, and the dangerous part is that they multiply. So uh, That's right, and specifically they use you to multiply. So they take over your cells and turn your cells from whatever their normal purpose is, um, guarding you from infection or whatnot, or processing ATP, um, and turn them into uh, just virus replication devices. Uh, and if, if enough of your cells get conscripted to that virus replication purpose, then, for instance, it becomes hard to breathe because your lung cells are no longer doing their normal job. Instead, they're they're cranking out uh, virus replicas. Yes, yes. And so, and Gabby, you're telling us now that this, uh, this kind of creature, I don't even know what we will call it, this kind of mechanism, this kind of virus, uh, exists probably as long as any other kind of life yeah i mean they're yeah i mean they, they use all the same tools as life so they probably evolved around the same times and it's actually that sort of thought process that led to people beginning to use viruses for probably the coolest thing to study basic biology Wow. So they. So um, yeah. And, and the only reason I mentioned that about them being around since the very beginning is I think people tend to think of viruses as something that that came from somewhere and then it goes away. Mm -hmm. so that they're sort of just occasionally, you know, coming around like a, like like locust or something. They came from somewhere, they attacked, and then they all went away, <laughs> right? And they all die. But they're not. They're, they're they've just always been here, and they have as much a right to this planet as uh, anybody else, I guess. Um, so you mentioned this. So w what scientist? Uh, or scientists said, "Hey, we can do we can use these creatures." So, it's it's actually really interesting how it came about. So, um, I guess like going way far back, virus people didn't know what viruses were necessarily. Um, it took a while for people to get their heads around that bacteria were causing illnesses, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and that it sort of just caught on at the time that people were discovering viruses, and they're like, "Okay, well, we can't grow this thing, we can't see it under a microscope." Um, and an early term for viruses that you might have read in, like, if you go back and try to read, like, really, really old scientific papers, they called them filterable agents because what they would do is they would run all of the, say, infected tissue through just, like, basically a blender and then try to, like, squeeze it through a filter. Um, and they would take what came out of the other side through a filter and the filter was the pores were small enough that they knew they weren't getting bacteria in there. And yet, somehow, they were still recovering something. Uh -huh. um, and what, so what, what time period are we talking about here? What, I want to know what costume are, the, are they wearing? So, How are they dressed? Uh, yeah. The acceptance of like bacteria as causing disease was like late 1800s with uh, Koch's postulates. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, I think the first 
big like step forward in that might have been like around early 1900s, 1910s. Um, so, for example, there were ways to measure it then. Like uh, de Harel was developed a technique called the plaque assay. Um, and I think the, the first micrographs of um, tobacco mosaic virus, which is a virus that was used a lot in the beginning, um, was were done in like 19 late 1930s. Um, okay. So, so this is sort of like around the time period that we're talking. Right. This is like the birth of molecular biology. Mm-hmm. All right. So people are wearing uncomfortable suits um, and uncomfortable dresses, uh, high stiff collars, I mm-hmm. think, um, <laughs> and working by poor light. Right. That's Electricity yeah. has just been invented mm-hmm. or, or you know, it's just widespread. widespread anyway. Yeah. Right. Around 1900. Um, so the, the filterable agent nomenclature is a really interesting one. I think actually is um, tells us something important about kind of cutting edge scientific work. It's one of these situations where they can't see the thing. They can't manipulate it. So they get rid of everything that they're sure is not it. And then whatever is left must be that thing. Right. When there is a ton of argument about what that thing even was, whether or not yeah. it was some liquid toxin that was mm-hmm. being secreted, perhaps as a result of bacteria, or whether or not there was a particle in there. Um, so people really didn't know what was going on. And it's kind of funny when you consider, at least from a virologist's perspective, of viruses can do insanely different things in biology. They're very variable. So the fact that they're working with what's kind of not a uniform mixture, that they're all staring at all of these vastly different filterable agents and scratching mm-hmm. their heads is, is kind of interesting. Like the world yeah, might have been cool. different if they accidentally wound up with prions as their filterable agent, um, which are essentially infectious proteins. They're really weird. Um, but it would have totally confounded what we were thinking of. It would have totally thrown a wrench in it and maybe it would have stalled the progress of science for a lot longer if they weren't at least looking at only viruses as filterable agents. Interesting. Yeah. And so um, I'm not quite sure. So let me think about that. What you're saying is that, so it sounds like at some point they realized that these are, uh, uh, tell me a little bit more about that. What is it that they, what, what is it that would have stalled the progress? Well, just that like, um, if there had been something that had thrown like a really worthwhile loop in there, like they, they were trying to characterize, they were trying to characterize these things. And there were some things that were popping up as differences but in biology, sometimes you can't tell whether or not that's a difference of you're physically looking at two different things or if it's, if it's situational, if your your materials aren't good. So, for example, some of them were concluding that maybe my filters were bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the beginning, they were like, uh, this is probably a bacteria. I think with tobacco mosaic virus, the first two people who re- really did like impactful work, or at least that's like, you know, the work that pops up in like fields virology when you read it. They both were concluding, oh, it's probably bacteria, but I don't really know what. Like, the I think it was the second guy who used filters, and he he was just like, my filters were probably wrong, because he couldn't he could not identify what came out the other side. Um, and so it would have been probably kind of weird if someone had identified two different if they'd managed to identify two different things in the filterable thing that had vastly different properties that would yeah, have that's great. really slowed him down and had them take a step back. And the fact that they didn't have the technology. Yet oh, to really do a lot of intense characterization, they, they probably would have just been stymied for a while. They wouldn't have really known the difference. Right. So what you're saying is that they were able to basically think of viruses all as one thing. Yeah, so they yeah was, exactly. Like, a, they oh, here's a class of something. We need to figure out what this is. And when does, does the word virus, where, where does that come from? Because basically what's, what I'm realizing, too, is amazing is here's the era of discovery of them, which means prior to that, no one ever talked about viruses. 
They didn't even. Yeah. Know so viruses is a Latin term. I believe it means slimy water. Or like, awesome. Like, it's something along that so they were like all right we've got this filtered stuff it's you know virus yeah yeah i just looked it up that's right it's um yeah yeah, latin for uh, slimy liquid or potent juice (laughs) (laughs) that again i'm look i'm gonna tell everybody i have listened to probably as much news listened read consumed in all media uh all the news that there is fit to print and broadcast and much of it that is not uh, about this. And no one ever, no network, no newspaper, no Reddit, I, I must, I probably is on Reddit and I just missed <laughs> that particular thread has told us that virus means slimy water, which if it isn't, if it wasn't already, it needs to be a Credence Clearwater song. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> well, slimy actually, water. And it yeah. just occurs to me, so then coronavirus means crowned slimy water. Is that right? <laughs> Amazing. That's great. Yeah. All these Latin experts out there listening to the news, shaking their heads. They're like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. These are like hip hop names. Crown DJ, water. Crowns, <laughs> DJ Slimy Crowns Water. water. <laughs> All right. So, Gabby, so um, I'm sure you didn't have that discussion in class. They didn't, they didn't go down that. that no, but route. I wish they did, you know? See? Fun. <laughs> That's the difference. We're, yeah. we're good for something. Exactly. You and your so, multi billion dollar educational institutions. <laughs> nobody said Slimy Water. Yeah. Um, so what is it, x-ray crystallography that people first start being able to see viruses as so sort of... I think x-ray crystallography came a little bit later, but I know they were doing a lot of um, electron microscopy. So there's ways that you can stain viruses with um, sort of believe, like dense metals. Um, okay. And what it would do is even though the virus itself would sort of be nuked away by just the endless stream of electrons it would sort of get the outside of it the stain would stay okay. um and so it was sort of like a negative photo of it mm-hmm. um and that's sort of how they they started looking at it originally and then later techniques like um x-ray crystallography came out um and, and i believe cryo em was demonstrated with viruses because I, I remember at least so there's uh, there was a big uh i guess revolution that happened, which it sounds very funny when you phrase it. It just became out because we figured out how to make better ice. Um, <laughs> we, if you flash throw stuff a certain way, the the water molecules would sort of line up in a more regular pattern. I believe it was it's vitrified mm-hmm. ice, um, and so that helped us see things better. It just enhanced our resolution a ton. Wow. And the paper that was showing that showed it with viruses, and they they got. The structure of that and that was how they demonstrated it because viruses are That's pretty cool they tend to be very regular they're regularly shaped mm-hmm. um so it was a good thing to be able to like try your hand at and i think they used a structure that people had determined previously by other older methods um and then they're like oh hey by the way we can do this better now that's amazing and and matt isn't the this how this is this early turn of the century uh turn of the, into the 20th night from the 19th to 20th century is also the period where adams uh, and, and so electrons being part of the atoms are being discovered for the first time as well or verified. Yeah, that's right. And it's, that's the same kind of epistemological problem, actually, uh, which is when something is so small you can't see it, how do you decide if it's there? So precisely the same uh, era of scientists trying to figure out how to make, you know, how do you decide whether there is something smaller than you can detect or if your filter is bad or if you're just imagining these sorts of things. Um the uh, there was a Austrian 
philosopher of scientists and physicist named Ernst Mach, who was a, who was a skeptic of things like atoms and viruses that you couldn't oh. see. And he used to call them um, hypothetico-fictitious physics uh, because they were just you're just making up stories about them. He went out uh, on a limb. He threw down on that and he turned out to be wrong, but he still got his name on the sound, speed of sound or something. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Same mock. Uh, but this is um, I mean, it's a it's an interesting era. And there's a lot of scientific debate at the time about like what the status of these things should be. Or, you know, are they are they real, but we haven't seen them yet? Are they imaginary? Are they like a useful fiction? Because sometimes that happens. Right. You come up with an idea that's useful for solving problems. So you don't think is actually true. Um, and uh, uh, and then it, it so happens that I would say both with atoms and viruses, um, technological and theoretical advancements got to the point where we can look at a picture and say, yes, that's what we mean by a virus. Um, but it takes, but that's a long, it's a lot of work. And it sounds to me as certainly with atoms, people worked with the idea for thousands of years before anybody ever saw one. And it sounds like with viruses, it was at least decades where people were doing useful things with them long before they could manipulate or even see them. Yeah. And so yeah, this, and this, actually, go ahead, Gabby. Oh, I was just going to tack on. Pasteur made his rabies virus vaccine without ever knowing he was working with a virus. Ah, he never explored great. it. He yeah. just was like, all right, I'm going to solve this problem and never really characterized it, never really profiled the fact that it was so weird, but he, he still made something effective with it. So, what, what is that story? It's, it's oh. basically just. <laughs> I was going to say that's that's the story of germ theory, right? <laughs> and um, uh, effective vaccination for things like uh, anthrax and eventually smallpox and such for for humans too. Um, so he, you say there people had he came up with a cure for rabies, a vaccine, a vaccine yeah. for rabies, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, and by using what? So so he for just, those of us who don't know, know that story at all, like me. I don't know what you, you guys seem to know what you're talking about. Like you guys are the cool kids right now. And I'm like, rabies. Yeah. What? So here's an example of where viruses began to be useful, right? In something well, like I just So I don't really know too much about his process, but I just thought it was amusing at the fact that he didn't necessarily know that what he was working with was a virus. Mm -hmm. uh, and he still was able to create a vaccine that was protective against the virus. Um, and while people out, were out there trying to like figure out what viruses were, what were these filterable agents, he was like, well, I'm going to ignore that big question and just solve a problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, problem. that's right. It's an amazing example. And I should say, again, something that happens in science all the time um, is you can figure out how to come up with a concrete solution to a problem without really understanding the sort of metaphysical foundations of what you're working with. So is it that um, rabies is a virus? Yeah, rabies so, is a virus. Right. Yeah. So the the big question that um, Pasteur and friends were were trying to solve, or that that was kind of the context for for him working on this, was called the spontaneous generation debate, which mm -hmm. is about whether life can just pop into existence on its own, or if life life has to come from life. So Pasteur was of the camp that spontaneous. Matt has spontaneously frozen. Oh. <laughs> the. Wow, that's quite a freeze frame too. Skype-based right. <laughs> uh, podcast approach. So right in the middle of his story, Matt Stanley's computer gave him a blue screen of death, which I know for Windows users is a uh, not unheard of disaster, but not that common. It's the worst of the worst. Uh, he says it might take him 20 minutes or so to, to reboot. And so we are continuing without him. Hopefully he'll make it back. Uh, could be a virus. Could be a computer virus in there. We don't know. Hopefully not.
Uh, but we are all on lockdown, continuing under wartime conditions. Uh, so, Gabby, mm-hmm. tell us about so Pasteur. Yes, he he started working on he, a rabies vaccine, and so he was it that he he discovered he could. And is he inventing vac? Is he inventing vaccines? For no, 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 no. That, okay. that, this was not like vaccines as a concept were not necessarily new. Right. But vaccines had been sort of practically developed before people necessarily knew what they were using. So, for example, the smallpox vaccine using cowpox, I think that was Jenner. Um, that was that was a sort of like, you know, early vaccine um, where it used a virus, but people didn't necessarily know that it was a virus causing it. And similar to this, although Pasteur's rabies virus vaccine was during the time that people were trying to learn about viruses and characterize what they were calling like filterable agents and whatnot, um, he was still very focused on creating just a solution to a problem. Um, and like Matt was saying, so actually that experiment about um, whether or not spontaneous generation was a thing uh, was actually important to cementing stuff about viruses. Um, essentially, they, they were able to show through like a closed system, basically uh, a bottle with a cork in it, um, that if you like sanitized everything in it and came back a week later after you'd made it, you know, so it couldn't, you know, exchange anything with the air or whatever, that there wasn't going to be anything in it. You couldn't recover any life from it. So that in that week, life hadn't just popped up in the bottle. Right, right, right. And um, so did they sort of realize that uh, viruses are bad things and useful tools kind of around at the same point? Yeah, so uh, viruses were sort of becoming things that people were realizing could create disease. Um, It ran into some problems because at first it didn't satisfy something called Koch's postulates, um, which were essentially that from an illness you you could regularly find an organism uh, in like a a lesion caused by a disease. Um, You could isolate it pure in culture, so it was only that organism. Um, and then, like, if you gave it to something else, it would cause the same disease, but then also that you could get it back out of the organism whose disease you had just caused. But the problem with viruses is that people didn't know how to grow them for a while. Uh-huh. So they were faced with, like, this sort of break in, you know, conscious postulates, which they were using as sort of like a rule book at the time. Um, but then there was actually a lot of really interesting work that came out thinking about viruses as, well, these are probably, you know, fundamental to answering questions about life so through sort of just like a you know blender and then chemical analysis approach people were able to figure out there's some protein in there there's some nucleic acid in there um and actually it's some of this work was pioneered by a a crack team whose story i kind of love uh luria and delbrook delbrook was a physicist a german physicist in the u.s Luria was an an Italian scientist, again, in the U.S. During World War II, Mm. they were doing science here. um, And they pioneered using viruses, specifically phages of bacteria, as a model for understanding life processes. And that led to us, that sort of idea, led to us eventually realizing that, you know, DNA is the heritable material, like really important discoveries for our knowledge of biology. Right. And when you say here, you don't mean just the U.S., you mean Rockefeller University. Um, or, no, so they were they were nearby. I think they did some work at Cold Spring Harbor, which is on Long Island, uh, and yep. they also planned out their experiments, if I remember correctly, at Columbia University. Uh-huh, uh-huh, um, yep. 
But then the the work that actually was DNA is the heritable material discovered with uh, bacteriophages. That was here. I actually I actually work in the same building where they discovered that. It's really cool. <laughs> wow. And so that because of viruses, we that vi- the discovery of viruses leads the way to discovering DNA. Yeah. Um, yeah. And specifically that it's as important as it is. So uh-huh. to give you some characterization of what the issue was at the time, people knew people could, you know, put a cell in a blender um, and identify that there were nucleic acids and proteins um, sort of being bound. But what was the genetic information of the cell? And if you look at how vastly different life is, you might think it's proteins because proteins can be vastly different from each other. You're like, oh, okay. So the thing that's most varied is probably the thing that's causing the most variation. That's probably why we're all so different. Um, But it was a pretty intense scientific fight. No one could really figure out why. And so there was uh, this experiment done by Avery McCarty and uh, McLeod uh, at Rockefeller. um, And it, it was part of just a long series of experiments that really cemented it. But this was like the first one, I think, that sort of became a cornerstone in this. Um, And what they did was they took um, bacteria and a bacteriophage that killed them. Um, And some bacteria would become resistant to this phage. Um, And they discovered um, that if they took the DNA of resistant bacteria that could be used to transform bacteria that weren't resistant into their resistant form. And so the viruses could only kill the ones that hadn't been getting the, uh, the DNA from the other, the other class of bacteria. Um, and so what they did was they took that, you know, emulsion of resistant bacteria and they treated it with a bunch of things that would degrade protein, that would degrade nucleic acids, that would degrade, uh, degrade RNA. And so serially, they were able to rule out certain things. And eventually, you know, they, they found, OK, if we treat this with everything but the thing that kills DNA, it can uh, it can transform bacteria and make them resistant. But the minute we destroy the DNA, all of a sudden it can't and the phage kills them again. And then similarly, there was some work done with phages that had um, incorporated uh, radio labeled. So it was like right. Uh, like radio labeled nucleotides, essentially what is letters. Radio, Ra- radio they're a little bit radio. They're a little bit, I think, a little bit radioactive, so uh, we can get cool uh, back like a signal. Right. Uh, they they did a lot of that work with just like film, I huh. think. So like that would expose the expose film. Expose the film, yeah, very cool. Um, and so they could put phages that had that DNA, and phages inject their DNA into a bacteria, and so they could recover all of those radio labeled nucleotides from the phage in subsequent phages that were created so they could see it being like Uh, transmitted down the generations of phage and they were like okay this is what's being sent along um not the proteins because the proteins were they tried with radio labeled proteins and those were never recovered they were just you know used up expended they never got transmitted to the offspring right right and so yeah they boiled it down to what is the uh kind of the lowest common denominator or the one common denominator among all things that uh, allowed uh, these things to multiply and uh, stuff like that. That is that is really cool. Um, and so, what's the next step in in viruses becoming? So, if we took viruses away from the world, mm-hmm. 
now let's imagine that world. So we haven't <laughs> we haven't learned about DNA. And so are we in a way, in other words, it sounds like what viruses do is they unlocked a certain uh, key in our knowledge. So we would yeah. be stuck at that. Oh, you know, maybe they would have found another way around it. But it was in the study of viruses that unlocked the most fundamental things we understand about science. Uh, yeah. What about places where viruses are doing things that we consider benevolent? Is there situations where they do that? Or is it only when we, uh, when humans manipulate the viruses into doing what we want, that they do something that's not destructive to whatever the other things are? That it's I'm so inside. glad you asked the question. Yes. Okay. There's, there's a lot of really cool stuff that we're, not necessarily that we're learning from viruses, but that we're sort of commandeering them to do. And they might be stuff they do anyway, but that we're repurposing them. Um, so one of the ones that I'm a fan of is because there's like a bacteriophage for every bacteria on Earth, that means that there are bacteriophages that will infect different types of bacteria that are pathogenic that kill us. So these, because these are like ancient enemies, you can't have um, like MRSA become phage resistant. The phage will always kill that bacteria. No matter how many antibiotics it becomes resistant to, the phage is still going to kill it. Um, so what there are people doing, actually, there's there's a, again, another scientist at Rockefeller. Yeah. Um, he's converting a bunch of virus proteins into sort of next generation antibiotics. Um, he calls them lysins, um, which because they're from such an ancient enemy, the bacteria can't cope. Um, they can't evolve a resistance to it. Is it describe um, then, I'm not quite sure about what the what the ancientness of their of their, like it's like the Hatfields and the McCoys or yeah, some so ancient what that fight. Essentially yeah. means is that the I'm sort of using that as a shortcut to say that the the license in a phage, the thing that essentially blows the bacteria up from the inside uh, when the phage wants to get out, um, it targets things that are so core to that bacteria and what makes that bacteria able to survive that it can't alter resistance. Antibiotic resistance is kind of novel because it's a little bit like a chemical warfare and the bacteria can just stick on a metaphorical gas mask. Um, but phages are a little bit like someone small swallowing a grenade. And a phage you, is a virus or if... Yeah, it's it's a specific right. type of virus that infects bacteria. We sort of use it as a slang term to differentiate between viruses that infect people and uh -huh, uh -huh. you know viruses that are just in, sort of environmental and they're everywhere. Right, right, right. So, okay, so there are these viruses called, which you call phages that can go in and basically act as a nuclear bomb inside. You know, it's just, it hits the self-destruct switch somehow. Um, and you It say, replicates it so much and like releases certain compounds that it just explodes the cell. Yeah. Amazing. And, and when you say ancient, because that through all the millennia, the phage has gotten so uh, good at that that the mm -hmm. that's what that's what it knows so much it's it's attacked bacteria so many times over millions and millions of years it knows its enemy and is mm -hmm. actually essentially what we say in, in evolution is it has become it has evolved to be perfectly designed to just be death to the bacteria yeah Amazing. it's it's very good at that and like i said it targets things that are so core that 
the bacteria can't really rewrite its entire evolutionary history to avoid it. Um, so that's kind of where it gets to be important that they're such old enemies. And that's what we use now trying to kill bacteria, which is a neat. Oh, that's neat. amazing. It's like, imagine, you know, if you were the bacteria and the bacteria are getting attacked by all kinds of different things and they don't know why, but these things just keep coming. They're like, oh, like you're no problem. You're no problem. You're no problem. And then the doctor says, well, here's an old friend. <laughs> no, boom. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, and what, what else? Uh, right now, so right now, what are other um, benevolent uses for viruses? Or are we, still, are, are we still using viruses to unlock mysteries? Yes, and yes to both. There yeah. are a ton of benevolent uses, and we are still using viruses to unlock everything. Um, so just to think of a few more really cool uses, um, we're experimenting with viruses to essentially um, kill sometimes cancerous cells in certain situations. Mm. Um, we, the entire gene editing revolution with CRISPR is a bacterial response to viruses. So if viruses didn't exist, we wouldn't have CRISPR-Cas9, um, which as a scientist, that is, it's so useful. It's so useful. So what does the virus do? Oh. What is what is the virus's role in CRISPR? And it just tells them CRISPR is... So CRISPR, the acronym is not relevant at all. Um, <laughs> it's it's very specific to the phenomenon it call, it, of what it is in bacteria. It stands for clustered regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats. <laughs> but in reality, it is a bacterial immune system. What... Huh. That means is that when a bacteria gets infected with a phage, it has some mechanism sometimes for, for destroying it um, and preventing itself from being blown to bits by said phage. And what it will do is take a bit of the phage DNA and stick it into this like cassette almost <laughs> in its genes. Um, and that is, it'll reference it back later to essentially as the the guide for CRISPR, which is the pair of scissors. So if that phage comes at it again, that get, it gets led back over to that um, that phage, and that phage DNA gets cut. Um, so we're so using a little bit. Like, yeah, the bacteria is able to cut out little pieces of DNA, and then we use those little pieces. We say thank you very much. Yeah, we, we were basically able to take the enzyme that does the cutting, um, and you know the fact that it needs a tiny little bit of target uh rna and we were like okay well we can use that and so then we made it target whatever we wanted instead of the viruses that it used to target um and now sort of a wave of advancement in crispr technology is that okay well a ton of bacteria have this crispr thing what are all these other variants good for um and so we're finding crispr enzymes or cas enzymes is technically the version of it um, that are able to target RNA, that maybe have um, different criteria for working that are more useful in, say, like a living organism. Um, and that's like that whole gene editing revolution is because bacteria evolved to fight viruses. Wow. So this is even more sophisticated than, than just viruses are good. It's worth saying, ah, here are these two enemies, these two life forms which go out against each other and the, their wars with each other in the process of attacking each other or trying to defend against the other 
we discover all kinds of little things and we say, oh, thank you very much, that enzyme, I could use that too, which we wouldn't know otherwise. We wouldn't know just if we kept them apart, you wouldn't see these things in action. Oh, yeah, exactly. Amazing. Although we have hijacked some stuff directly from viruses. Um, so, for example, reverse transcriptase, um, which is an enzyme that turns RNA to DNA. Um, it essentially violates what most people consider to be the central dogma of all of, you know, molecular biology. It, you know, just broke that. Whoa. Um, which, of course, won two people a Nobel Prize. Um, but we use it in the lab all the time. Um, when we want to look at something that's RNA, turn it back to DNA and sequence it. And it's actually a component of coronavirus testing now because the virus is an RNA virus. And so in order to do uh, the, the test, they have to turn that RNA back to DNA. And so it uses essentially another virus's toolkit a little bit in there. So to, to clarify, oh, Matt, welcome back. Thank you. Matt has returned. It. He has returned. And... Um, uh, what you're saying is, Gabby, is that the test that we need to use, people need to be able to take a test that can determine whether they have coronavirus or not, or have had it, and mm -hmm. and are, are better now, um, or hopefully immune. Um, we use another virus to attack, we put it in a, you know, I don't know, I guess in a Petri dish or something with a bacteria and let no, them, no, okay. No, okay. I'll, I'll explain. I that. will make Sorry. up all kinds of scientific. <laughs> so essentially, just to run you through the process, you get a swab from someone. Right. The swab contains, um, you know, viruses and some mucus gunk because they have to go way back in your nose. Um, and so we clean that up. We extract the RNA out of it, the virus RNA. Now, the virus needs RNA needs to be transcribed to DNA. It needs to be converted. Well, I think of it like a file converter on your computer. Yeah. Um, and... It just so happens that we stole this file converter from viruses. Um, and so we discovered it from there. We don't need the whole virus for it. We can just use that enzyme. Um, but then we turn it back to DNA and, and we sequence it. So I think one of the earlier times I said the process was PCR. It's actually RT-PCR, reverse transcript taste PCR. Uh, I was going to say. Um, I, 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 just, I just let it slide. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, wow, that, that is incredible. That is incredible. Um, Matt, uh, let so Matt has come back and, uh, Gabby, Matt w has actually come back from an alternate universe <laughs> in which viruses not just weren't discovered. That's, that's totally different. They never existed. What, what world does he live in? There are no viruses at all. Viruses never, so there's no ancient enemy. Appeared. Yeah. No enemy between bacteria and viruses or anything. There's only bacteria and no viruses. Uh, what's happening over there? What what hellscape is he living in? Or heaven? I don't know. Well, so if humans have evolved, because, I mean, man, I, I don't really know what that butterfly effect would be. Oh, right. Yeah, that's we, uh, true. <laughs> well, who's to say that Matt is still human in this other universe? That's true. We're, I may not be human. Yeah. So feel free to turn, turn <laughs> me into an iguana or whatever. It could be a dinosaur or something. Yeah. Uh, so... For one, we wouldn't have entire chunks of our genome because those come from viruses, which is, again, kind of weird. Oh. Um, we wouldn't have evolved a bunch of internal proteins that are responses to viruses. Um, some of those have sort of like additional responses um, just through some 
you know, evolutionary quirks of, well, we have this thing lying around, might as well use it for something else. Um, we would probably have a vastly different relationship with bacteria. Um, I don't necessarily know if that would make bacteria more pathogenic, but it would certainly limit how well we could control them. Because it's something like, I think it's every 48 hours, half of all bacteria on Earth are killed by phages. Um, it's, wow. Every 48 it's, it's, hours. Yeah, I mean, of course, they're replicating. Yeah, so they're it's getting not replaced. Like it's but... Yeah, they're getting replaced and probably then some. Right, um, right. But imagine if that wasn't happening. We'd be overwhelmed. Yeah, that's right. Um, so if there were no phages, we'd all be knee-deep in bacteria, right? Yeah, or, or I mean, there's something called ecological suicide, which is when... <laughs> They completely outgrow an environment and then the whole thing collapses. So who knows if there wasn't, you know, the original viral bacterial population control, maybe, you know, we would have just had one big ecological collapse in that life bringing tide pool and we never would have existed. Wow. Amazing. So, yeah, but really, basically, the war, the so-called war between the viruses and the bacteria uh, is an essential battle it is it is one of the key aspects of life on earth now it's not even not even like just in ancient times that we need this this whole this balance that's part of the ecosystem right we would if, yeah if we didn't have viruses it'd be the, the bacteria would be totally out of control um so the bacteria would have been happy because they don't they don't care about science you know they're not yeah like, you know they're just like awesome we're gonna run amok um so instead of matt emerging from this other universe in this other universe we might just see like a puddle of just a puddle of slime puddle of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a wrap because <laughs> <laughs> we have now returned to reality yes the puddle of slime so thank viruses that uh we are not a puddle of slime that's all we would be without uh without these viruses so basically they are um incredible they're becoming incredible tools well have been for a century now incredible tools for science these incredible mm -hmm. viruses and um uh they play a very very important role and sometimes like all things like all good things those things can be good they can be bad if they run amok and so the coronavirus right now is running amok in human society um but this, this kind of thing has happened in the past and and so like you're saying, in DNA, in human DNA, we can see evidence of previous attacks from viruses, right? That, that the humans, have, that's how we are resistant to them now. Well, not exactly. So or, specifically, there are some viruses called retroviruses, which incorporate right. their genetic information inside of you permanently. And some of them oh. have wound up in getting into our germ cells. Normally they don't. Uh, and our germ cells are the ones that are passed on to our children. Uh, you get, you know, fusion of one from your mom one from your dad um and we can see evidence of those in our dna um and i think actually we might have if i remember the one seminar correctly i think we might have commandeered some of their old bits a little bit too like i think we express at one point like one like uh old human like primate retrovirus protein i think in like placental tissue like we, we've co-opted some viruses for some weird stuff wow. um which includes just you know evolution in general but yeah we, we can see the sort of fossil record of old viruses that infected 
our common most ancestors with primates, which is part of how we've assembled a phylogenetic tree of where we even came from evolutionarily. Yeah, amazing. So basically, we and humans and viruses, we go way back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Gabby, thank you for th- this. Has been this was an incredible expedition through history and through viruses. This is amazing. I mean, what a, I have a totally different view of viruses, and I'm you know not not a, not simple joking terms of like oh I have a more they can be more positive or negative like totally I just see see them as part of a I see I have a little bit better sense of how they fit into the whole circle of life mm-hmm. you know <laughs> and uh, and science like you know that they are they are amazing tools of of science or let's say this the scientists are the ones who are you know using these things as amazing tools uh, Matt do you have any um, any final words for um, the virus? Um, for, for the virus? For, the, well, for, the, for this for, journey. Thank, thank you, viruses. <laughs> right. um, thank you for keeping bacteria under control. Yeah. Um, and uh, I look forward to many more eons of collaborative uh, biological cooperation with you. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Our partners. Yeah. Just like, <laughs> just like all families. Sometimes, you know, sometimes you get into a fight. Sometimes you yep, hurt each other. Right. And sometimes it lasts a billion years. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know, actually, that's a true family fight. I mean, they just, you it know, they, a billion years. Right. Um, yeah. You can't stand your uh, your uncle Ralph anymore, but he has a really good oatmeal cookie recipe. So you have to keep him around. Old Uncle Ralph. What a virus. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you, Gabby. Uh, Gabby, we, we will we will continue this. For those of you who are listening, um, um, write us at uh, feedback at whattheif.com and uh, you know, tell us any thoughts you had um, while listening to these episodes and any questions you have abs- in particular uh, or ideas, suggestions for things. What are the things you'd like to know about the incredible world of viruses? Um, also remember to, if you can, rate us and review us on your pod service, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or all those different things we're on. Um, let us know. And uh, by the way, when you email us, feedback at whattheif.com, tell us where where are you listening from? We're on planet Earth. Um, and uh, what service are you using? I'm curious, which podcatcher do you enjoy? Matt, do you have anything to plug? Um, uh, yeah, those, uh, monasteries in Greece, as soon as they, they lift the travel ban, go to Medeora. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, let there be a flood of tourism back to Greece. Yes. Uh, and, uh, Gabby, is there anything you would like to plug? Nope. Tragically, I'm boring. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I actually, one thing. Yeah. Uh, so I think I had mentioned on the first podcast, uh, Rock EDU, which is my university's science outreach program. Uh-huh. They recently just put up a whole huge, like, intro course on viruses. Oh, wow. Oh, perfect. Um, so it's, it's like a good breakdown of some of the things we talked about in the fir- first podcast. Uh, but I think they also go in depth on some other ones, and it's written to be actually readable. <laughs> Oh, that's not just all charred. That's perfect. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's at rock.edu. Is that right? Uh, or, uh, I think just Google you can Rock Google EDU it. Science Outreach. I, I'll give you the link once I can. Okay. Yeah, it back we'll up. have the link will be on our webpage, uh, whattheif.com, where 
Great segue. Uh, you can go there anyway. All our episodes are there. Um, by the way, if you don't know, you can also see all you know. All our episodes are in whatever pod app you're using right now. You can also find all the episodes. But go to whattheif.com and you can learn a lot more. Our incredible staff, Ilya Zhang, has been putting in tons of great additional material there for each episode. So go check that out, whattheif.com. You can also contact us there. Just click contact. You can also subscribe there, which I encourage you to do. So you do not miss an episode. Get them as soon as they pop up on the internet. And now, if you will join us, we will say, um, those of you who know, you know, get ready. Prepare your ears. And your mind. Those of you who are new and are wondering, uh uh-oh, what's about to happen? Well, we, when we, well, Matt, Matt, you can explain. What is it? Why do we do this ritual at the end of every episode? Oh, it's our moment of existential horror um, at the uh, infinite number of ifs that await us um, around the corner. Indeed. More, there are more than 10 to the, there are 10 to the 32 ifs <laughs> coming our way. And so we cannot help but scream the name of the show very slowly. Like this. What, what the, the is?